right, my guest today in conversation with the Urban Tiger Radio is Dan Minton. Now, I came across Dan a few weeks ago at the Novel Slam in Dina's on Cambridge Street, which used to be quite a famous street in Sheffield for all sorts of nefarious reasons, more than more than it is now. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the pub up there, just, just up the road from there. Somebody will hang me for this, for not remembering. But it was a real den of iniquity. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it was full of drug addicts and prostitutes and drunks. <laughs> anyway, be that as it may, I think a good time was had by all in there. So, Dan... Uh, tell me a little something about the novel Slam. Where about where did you hear of the novel Slam? Oh, that's a good one. I uh, on the off the shelf literary sort of festival website, I was sort of scouring it and I'd spotted the short story competition run by the Sheffield and I get these groups confused. There's the Sheffield authors and the Sheffield novelists. I think that's run by the Sheffield authors. And then someone else pointed out this novel Slam and I hadn't heard of the sort of concept before. So I had a read of it and I thought there's very little to lose by entering and seeing what was going on. So without much expectation, sent in an entry and was very happy to sort of be accepted. And then the night itself was, uh, yeah, obviously very exciting. I had a very good time there. So you heard about the Novel Slam and you visited their website. Was it difficult to enter? No, not really. Um, there was uh, a just an email address and it was just email over uh, sort of your details. And I think I think I had to email over sort of an example of what the sort of thing I'd be reading would be. So obviously the Novel Slam, uh, for people who might not know, is a selection of you do a selection of readings uh, in front of a live audience. So I think I had to send over sort of an example of what I'd be reading, and I was very, I was quite late in entering. I think I was very close to the deadline time, so I was like, oh, they maybe will be booked up already. Maybe they've got all their places filled. But luckily, a few days before, they sent me an email going, no, nope, we've got space for you come on down and yeah came down on the day and yeah was very very pleased to so I got through to the final and then um and I, I managed to win it which yeah. was uh yeah actually amazing that, that, that if you if you submit your entries late for these kind of events it's probably not a bad scenario because you're still fresh in their memory the ones they've read at first they've they sort of faded a little. Yes, quite possibly. Quite yeah, maybe that yeah. might have helped me in those sort yeah. of early rounds. Well, I, I was there on that night and I remember you reading and it's rather difficult to concentrate under those circumstances. I, I th- yeah, very tough. I think the, the listening is just as difficult as the reading in some ways for people, I think. But you had a good set of judges up there. Who were they? Can yeah, so there what? was uh, Bryony Duran, sort of writer and sort of poet. S- S- uh, Stacey uh, Solomon, yes, I think, yeah, um, uh, who uh, was very kind to me afterwards. I spoke to quite a lot. Uh, Gavin X. Stance and Daniel Blythe. Um, right, okay. To the four who, judges. That was yeah. Who was the um, Simon Cowell then of the judges? Uh, Gavin Extance. I don't. He wasn't such a large fan of my work as the others. So you know, he was still complimentary about bits of it. But certainly, um, my writing is like all writing is is obviously subjective, and it just wasn't for him. But he was the first judge to give feedback. So I'm stood on stage, and he was giving me sort of like complimentary, but with some quite some negative aspects to it. Certainly, feedback. And uh, I, I would be lying if I said my heart hadn't dropped slightly uh, at that moment. <laughs> and I knew that I would, you know, I obviously wanted to win. Who doesn't want to win things? It's exciting to win. I knew that uh, Ollie had got eights across the boards. And then when uh, when Gavin gave me a seven, I was like, well, that's all over then. And then I got nine off Stacey, which was just brilliant. And then eight off Daniel Blythe. And then... Uh, I was, so in my head, I was already doing the maths. I was like, okay, I need an eight to draw and a nine to win. I was like, oh my God, I might actually do this. 
giddy as a kitten at the time. And then uh, Bryony gave me a 10. Uh, and I was close to sort of falling off the stage at that point. I was... <laughs> I think yeah. I'd have been close to tears. Oh, I've been up was... there myself. No, yeah. Actually, on Novel Slam, but I oh, didn't really? actually get through. It's some time ago now. Uh, I, I know what it's like. I mean, I, I've stood on stage and read my work in, in the past. Oh, it was nerve-wracking, isn't it? being judged by your own pen. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Very often you find it stuck in you somewhere painful. Yeah, I... Yeah. Uh, as much as the the nice words stuck with me, I can remember everything Gavin said as well that he didn't like yeah. about it. And I'd love to say that was just water for ducks back and I was completely confident. But no, I've got, no that, that stuck with me just as much as anything. And so when I was looking at my work and really pleased that I'd won, there's all that niggling voice going, yeah, but Gavin didn't like it. What did Gavin say about it? And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Have right, a look okay. again. Well, this is where you are now. So let's let's rewind a little. Yeah, your 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 book that you're completing is called uh, Yellow Jacket. Yellow Jacket, and and its theme is uh, is wasps. Yeah, the uh, yeah sort of the because um, uh, it's set in uh, southern Utah. Yeah, um, and so that's the sort of colloquial name they have for sort of the wasp over yeah, there. The they call jacket. it a yellow jacket. All right, okay, the firemen over here aren't they? Yellow yes, jacket. indeed. Uh, anyway. Right, okay, so let, let's do this rewind bit and let's go back to where do you feel that you, your first incentive to write came from? And what age were you? Relatively recently. Certainly, I've always liked sort of doing creative sort of projects, but writing, especially sort of like a novel, was something I've only come to very recently. It's all been sort of a bit of a shock. I was a teacher. So I'm 31. So in my 20s, I was just a teacher, not just a teacher. I was very proud to be a teacher, very happy to be a teacher. But uh, I wasn't doing any sort of creative endeavours sort of in literature or anything like that. And as I got towards 30, I had, I wouldn't call it a midlife panic. I hope not anyway, because that would suggest my life expectancy is quite <laughs> short. But I had a bit of a panic and I was like, I, I don't know if I want to do this forever. I don't know how comfortable I am saying that I was a teacher for my whole career. And I've always loved reading sort of the written word I love comedy as well so scripts and stuff like that I'm always going through so that sort of stuff and I just decided almost at, I don't know my boss convinced me to do a master's I'd quit my job teaching and I was just going to quit and take some time off and she convinced me to go part-time and do a master's and the school would sort of support me and work around me doing a master's because they didn't want me to leave. And I was like, okay, now I need to work out what I'm going to do a master's in. Yeah. And creative writing was the only thing that I could possibly think I'd be interested so in. So what, what were you actually teaching at that time? I was teaching religion. I'm an RE oh, teacher. That's my speciality. Yeah. Yeah, nothing to do with English or anything like that. I think everyone on the course thought I'd go to be an English teacher, but no, not at all. And I, my assumption had been when I did the course that I would write scripts. I was like, scripts is going to be the one. Yeah. I haven't got the concentration to write a novel. And I have written some scripts and I'm I'm happy with them and I was pleased with the marks I got. But uh, when I started writing this, it all sort of yellow jacket, which is sitting, I say this because it's on the table in front of me in some form. Uh, it all sort of came together in a way that I was, I didn't feel I was quite in control of. I was like, oh, this is here and I'm loving this and yeah. I'm happy with this. <clears> and it was very exciting. And it sort of changed how I thought about everything in, on it. In the process of... of- putting the novel together. Did you find that uh, your novel sort of fell into discrete parts? I found when I did my first novel that the hardest thing about it was to get them in the right order or in an order that actually made sense because mine mine wasn't written in an entirely linear fashion. So I I couldn't not write it linearly in my right. head. I wrote it... I, I spent a month without writing anything where I'd, well, I'd written the opening 
chapter almost just as a writing exercise and kept coming back to it and thinking I really love this little bit of writing and thinking about it more and more and more and so started structuring what would it be as a story where would this go and because I'm a teacher we're obsessed with powerpoints yeah and so I (laughs) I powerpointed out and it was sort of a 40 50 slide powerpoints in my head of going right this is this this would be the next scene this would be the next scene and thinking about it almost cinematically like okay where are the characters there's no sort of time jumps in the novel there's no nothing too abstract um the writing style isn't necessarily sort of it's not it's more literary fiction in terms of the writing style but it follows quite a slim simple narrative it's just one very simple story yeah a boy in a summer holiday, in a summer vacation, as they call it in America, over about two weeks. Oh, right. Okay. So, so, so it's not yeah, quite it's a condensed... So, yeah, because it's yeah. so limited, yeah. actually writing it linearly didn't wasn't that big wasn't an issue. Problem. And yeah. it sort of had to be written linearly because everything that was coming later was so influenced by his feelings of what has happened before yeah. that I don't think I could have very... I don't think I'd have written a very good finale before I'd written it and in fact the finale I had planned out was not the finale I wrote well this explains something because I, I notice your your writing is, is particularly tight yeah uh, and descriptive but without getting woolly and it, if it's over a two-week timeline then then yeah I can see where yeah the whole manage to sort yeah. of get the whole image in my second novel which is not published it happens over four timelines two centuries apart wow I had an eight by four sheet of plastic, clear plastic on the wall behind you there and it was covered in yellow post-its each with a, a sort of section on it was absolutely festooned with them so yeah. if, if anybody's listening and wants to know how to do a complicated novel two things first one don't <laughs> <laughs> and if you can't resist it go and buy an eight foot by four foot sheet of plastic and stick it to the wall and and several packets of post-its and plan your novel out that way once you've got it written because it's like putting together a a jigsaw mine was anyway yeah i can imagine so so you you've you've taken uh one idea and you've really followed it yeah it was about because it's it's very much a character piece it's so tight because it's written in the first person so you're so tightly connected to this character it's all about how he sort of feels going through this sort of two-week period and then there's a lot of sort of emotional backtracking into what's happened before through sort of little, not flashbacks, but his sort of remembrances on past events. Sort of they're quite laden with sort of like sad sort of pathos. But I think the whole thing had to be, because of the style of writing, it was all had to be so tight. Plot wise, it had to be tight and simple. It's the whole sort of style of it had to be sparse and yeah, yeah nothing, no fat on it at all. Yeah. And that's sort of what I was going for. So you're writing about Utah. Yeah. The the guy, the main protagonist, what's his name? Uh, Eddie, Eddie. Eddie Nielsen. Is is he American or is he... He is. He is, uh, he is from this town, Bicknell in, in yeah, Utah, yeah, yeah. which I'm obsessed how, with. How do you feel about that? And I'll tell you why I asked the question, because I'm often accused of having a sort of a mid-Atlantic voice when it comes to writing, right. or mid, actually yeah. Midwest uh, in lots of instances. Mm. Um, and I, can, I find that I can write in that style so easily it's untrue basically probably because i grew up reading fiction in in that style but uh, i feel very comfortable using that kind of language yeah. that kind of situation uh, a lot of ray bradbury yeah I read you know uh, i mean that's all sort of midwestern mm. fiction and you're you, 
what you're describing to reminds me of Kent Haroof. Have you come across I'm Kent not, Haroof? No, I've not read Kent Haroof. You haven't read Kent Haroof? No. Right, okay. For anybody who's listening, Kent Haroof. He died young. He's left uh, a very short legacy behind maybe five books. What and, sort of? And and they are Midwest oh, really? uh, American fiction. But it, it, it deals, they're very emotional set against a sort of Midwest farmsteads, right. small towns in the middle of the prairie. Right, yeah. Uh, uh, and it's absolutely fantastic. If anybody wants to read Kenta Roof, Our Souls at Night is the starter. That's is that the one primer. to go for? Right. Kent right. That will introduce you to Kent Haroof. From then on, you you will want to read everything <laughs> he's, he's ever done. I'll check out Kent um, Haroof. So, so let's rewind a little bit further then. So now we know that you, you were a teacher at, yep. and from being 20-ish. Yeah, 21. 21, and, uh, and that you've decided to take a, a change of direction in your career. Yep. Prior to being a teacher, now you're not you're not Sheffield. You're I'm not, not Sheffield, no, I can't even pretend. Anybody listening can tell the difference between my accent and Yeah, exactly, no so, one's falling so for it. So where are you from? I'm from South London originally, uh, sort of born in Croydon in South London, and then uh, as a lot of families did, as, you know, parents sort of started doing better economically, moved slowly out of south and south and south until yeah. we were sort of in the green belt, sort of so sort of finished sort of my childhood sort of in the green belt outside of London by the M25, and then... At 18, moved to Sheffield for university and never looked at moving back. Yeah, well, so many people do that. I mean, Sheffield yeah. has supposedly got the most uh, the high retention rate. Retention yeah. rate. Yeah. I, I think nearly all my friends stayed for at least one or two years and a lot of them stayed permanently. Yeah. I I love London for a number of reasons, but uh, Sheffield is home undoubtedly so now. pinpoint it. What is it about Sheffield that makes it home? It's the It's so friendly in every way that I wasn't aware that society was like that. So the home counties in London are a very sort of different vibe of not yeah. making eye contact, not talking to people in pubs. Insular. Yeah. yeah, and that's not necessarily who I am. I'm quite, I don't mind being friendly and stuff like that. So going to the pubs in the first time in Sheffield and sitting and having just a bloke another table just comment on your conversation and suddenly he's pulled his chair over and I was like, oh, this is different and I like this a lot and then there's the sort of scenery of the Peak District which is incredible and I try and go out I started working in Peniston recently so just getting to do that drive every day is is fantastic and it's just the perfect size I think there's so many like little bits of Sheffield you get all these little towns so the difference between Crooks and Walkley and then the difference between Walkley and Broom Hill I love all these sort of little separate city centres or town centres almost yeah, these little areas. And like Crooks, Walkley, and Broom Hill, you can walk between them in ten minutes. And yet they're all—they've all got their own sort of unique identity as yeah. well. The—that's brilliant. And uh, the pubs are better here, so much better. Well, funnily enough, I don't like much about London. I'll be perfectly honest, and especially the insularity of yeah. of, of London, because I always feel isolated there, and. I always feel like London is something of an illusion and I keep waiting for the bubble to burst, which it does occasionally. Usually it's a housing bubble that bursts yeah. down there, but I keep waiting for the bubble to burst and you know, one day it will. But London's pubs, considering that London suffered heavily during the Blitz, London's pubs are remarkably untouched. There's some good old boy pubs, yeah. yeah. There's some nice and old ones in the centre, but living sort of in the green belt out of the city, the suburbs... You've got a lot of um, sort of... Estate style. Yeah, new style pubs, which are no one's sort of favourites. And then, you know, there was the wave of Weatherspoons just as I left, which, you know, 
ruined a few pubs. I know they've got a better reputation now, Weatherspoons, but at the time they were pretty pretty horrible sort of establishments. So I do I do love sitting in sort of a nice yeah, there's something about a nice Sheffield pub that yeah. I don't We have think a few untouched ones, but not too yeah. many. Anyway, we're digressing a little yeah, here. So, uh, but, but it's good, it's good, it's good. I would like to hear a little of Yellow Jacket, yeah, please. Sure so uh, would you like to tell me why you've chosen this particular piece? Um, yeah, uh, I, so it's the third chapter of the piece at the moment, as it stands currently. Uh, and really, because I've been sort of playing with it recently um, and considering making it the first chapter, the opening chapter. So uh, it's just one that's in my head a lot at the moment. And um, so I'm just quite fond of sort of it's got quite a lot of the characters all coming together in sort of one moment. So what we're going to hear is basically are going to become the opening lines. of the it, it, it might become that. Yeah. Yeah. At, yeah if moment, I yeah. if I move it round. In I'm, this incarnation. Yeah. yeah as I, as I know how one goes. Yeah. In two weeks time, it'll be the final chapter suddenly <laughs> and I'll have decided completely differently. But yeah, yeah. at the moment, it's yeah, uh, okay. looking well, quite But it's lucky. an author's privilege. Exactly. I, I can come back to my eight foot by four foot yeah. board and shifting <laughs> stuff around. Yeah. yeah. I don't, yeah, but I, I, I might shift it around slightly. But um, yeah, it's just a nice, I, I quite like some of the bits I've done in here. It's a bit, well, I'm like, if I'm going to feel proud of anything, I might reread this bit and go, well, I'm before happy you that. read this, just tell me what it is about it that you particularly like about this. So uh, the main character who you sort of, when you spend a lot of time writing it, I've become so fond of, uh, Eddie. I think I get quite a lot of his personality over. And I think what I work with a writing group quite a lot and what they've started calling the writing group Eddieisms, sort right. of his yeah, little yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of I know. foibles that I've created for him. And I yeah. think I've got quite a few that I'm quite happy with in here where I look and go, yeah, that's exactly what yeah. Eddie would do, even though Eddie's not real and is in my head. That's yeah. what he would do. I have do a similar there. thing with my novel, The Fox and the Fish. Brian calls them McCurleyisms. Oh, there you go. You know, his yeah. name is McCurley. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, he has he has many idiomatic <laughs> yeah. ways of expressing himself. So right, okay, carry on. Okay. You seen the size of those? I just want to, Oni said. He shook his head back and forth, tongue lolling out of his mouth. We stood in the shade of the forest, mainly pines. He was watching a jet ski circle on a lake, a middle aged lady in a bikini driving it. She looked a bit like Oni's mum. I hadn't seen his mum in a long time. She didn't live with Oni. Seemed to always be staying somewhere new. Only live with his gram-gram. He's wearing camo shorts, as usual, and a Harley Davidson t-shirt we'd cut the the sleeves off last summer. Since then, his cousin had decorated his arms, permanently. An eagle, an American flag, outline of a lady, Oni's name, Oni's mum's name, a bulldog and a monkey. The names look good. The monkey looked more like a cat. A twig hit me. You know what I mean? Oni had thrown it. I knew what he meant. I had the internet. I deleted my browser history every night. Pop would have called her well-built. Mum would have slapped his arm for looking. Come on, let's see if we can get a ride. Only thrust his hips. I threw the twig back at him. We stepped out of the shade. The rocks were like hot coals, baked white in the sun. I pulled on my sneakers, hopping on one foot, then the other. Had to tread down on the backs. Only just walked on. He went barefoot whenever he was able. His soles were black. He'd walk the mile and a half to my house, down the dust at the edge of the road, with nothing on his feet. Mum used to make him wash them with a hose before he came inside. He'd always accept and make her laugh, tell her how good she looked, or pretend she was my sister and not my mum, even at the end. Pop wouldn't have let him in the house, clean feet or not. I just want to swim, I said. Well, shit, yeah, Oni said. Whatever. He marched off to the lake. 
I scrabbled after him and jogged to the edge of the lake. I wanted us to stop, to swim, but only kept on walking, round past the rocks that formed islands in the shallows, like the shells of big grey turtles. We used to stand on them and call ourselves King of the Lake, then try and throw each other off. I only walked straight past, set off towards a man sat in a deck chair near the little wooden pier. Hey, Mr Hanray, she is mighty fine, I only pointed at the jet ski. The guy was drinking a can of Bud Light, dark blue jeans and open denim shirt, dark glasses and a ball cap. Glasses were too dark, I couldn't see his eyes. He had a goatee that was so thick it seemed to be eating his mouth. Chest, arms and knuckles were covered in tattoos. Only had a moustache that I wanted, and he could sort of grow a beard. People thought I was his little brother or cousin, even though I was only an inch shorter than him. I didn't have to shave, but I still did every once in a while, taking those almost invisible hairs off my top lip and hoping they'd come in thick and black next time. You'd best not be talking about my wife, Mr Hanratty said. He laughed when the silence was almost painful. It was sharp, stopped before it had really begun. Not a natural laugh, an exclamation point. Only joined in. I was standing a few feet away, staring at the trees, the little cabin that had half fallen two years ago, an empty coke can that had been bleached till it was almost white. The jet ski was closing in. The lady was hollering Oni's name over the sound of the motor. She was jiggling all over. Oni shielded his eyes from the sun, admiring the view. I stared away again, looked at the clouds. There was one that was shaped like a dick. I didn't point it out. Hey, Angie! Oni had his hands cupped around his mouth. Angie waved and brought the jet ski to shore, cut the engine. Silence. I could hear my feet crunching into the gravel. Oni jogged to the pier, helped pull the jet ski close offered Angie a hand to pull her to shore, even though she was dripping all over him. She stumbled as she stepped off, only caught her, hands on bare skin. She put one on his chest, all oh and lordy. She didn't move it, he didn't move his. I raised my arms like I was stretching, flicked to look at Mr Hanratty, he was just stuck still. Couldn't see his eyes for the dark glasses, but he didn't seem to see Oni or Angie at all. Well who's this sad streak of shit standing in your shadow? Angie wrapped her hair in a towel as she spoke. Well, Angie, only said, this is Eddie Nielsen. That's very evocative. I like, I like the bit of the lake. I can almost hear the drone of the of the jet ski. Cheers. It's not one of my favourite uh, items, although being an ex-motorcyclist, I'm used to droning <laughs> noises. And uh, In fact, I'm used to creating most of them. Yeah, I, that's that's very evocative of, of place uh, and, and time. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Just explain to me where Yellow Jacket come into the story. So uh, there's a recurring theme in what is currently the first chapter, but may become the third chapter if these two do swap, of yellow jackets representing sort of a threat and adulthood. And this idea, constantly throughout the novel, Eddie starts working with a Nigerian gardener called Stephen. That's sort of the second thread of the novel, or the first thread, if you want to look at it in another way. And how he sees people deal with yellow jackets and how he sees people do- dealing with yellow jacket nests is sort of how he is viewing adulthood in the world. Right. And so you've got this constant theme of like watching these male figures in his life, uh, his father, Stephen, Oni and Hanratty, who's the sort of antagonist of the piece, and how they all deal with this situation in slightly different ways. And sort of through that, I'm trying to show, if I do it successfully, uh, sort of the nature of sort of masculinity and Eddie becoming a man and trying to see what sort of man he's becoming. Yeah, I can I, I can hear the difference between uh, Eddie and and the guy with the tattoos. Yeah, Oni. Oni, that was yeah. it, yeah. 
I can, I can hear the difference, I, and and yet there's not a lot of years between them. They're they're sort of school friends. Yeah. They're sort of yeah. the the sort of moment of the novel is when Eddie realizes they've grown too far apart, even though they're living near each other. Yeah. They're similar people. But they've grown apart in maturity. Yeah, they? exactly. In sexuality, turning, I think. Exactly. Very yeah. different men. So I think Eddie has realised that the person, the man he's becoming is not the man that Oni is becoming. And that's sort of like where... Sort that of where actually comes through very clearly. Oh, in, good. In, in <laughs> that's what I'm going yeah. for. Where Eddie's going to find himself, I'm, I'm unsure. But I mean, having said that, from the, from the short passage you've read, I, I don't expect to... No, that. No, sort of the. Th- that's, that's the whole yeah, thrust. The, of the whole novel. thrust of it yeah. is. Yeah. What sort of man will he become? Will yeah. he become a man like Oni, or will Where, he become yeah. his own sort of man? Where's he going? Yeah. Okay. Right. Thank you very much for that. No now, worries. just just to go back again. Yeah. Uh, you said you came to Sheffield University. Yeah. And you came to Sheffield University to do what? Philosophy. I study. I've got a degree in philosophy, which I've used very little. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the world's full of philosophy. Yeah. You, you use it actually all the time. Well, yeah, I, I'm either you using it constantly made, or it, yeah. not at all, depending on how you look yeah. at it. But certainly the academic pursuit of philosophy was uh, one I picked at 18, almost completely at random, and probably wasn't the correct decision at the time. You um, could probably have a good discussion with Brian, his son, because he's, <laughs> he's, he's an amateur philosopher, but, I think, but he's massive. I think I'd rather be an amateur philosopher than uh, an academic philosopher in some ways. I read philosophy at school, um, and not read as in studied, as in just read sort of bits of philosophy and enjoyed them. And I thought that's sort of what we're going to do at university. But you, in studying it, it almost takes all of the joy out of it. You study the minutia so yeah. much that it, it doesn't matter anymore what the actual whole book says. It matters whether the author used of or should. Yeah. And at that point, I, I found it in some ways quite frustrating I found it offensive. I mean, I I very briefly did uh, English lit, mm. and and I found a dissection of of the of the sentence structures, the novel, or even little bits and pieces. I, I found it quite offensive because it took away from the whole. Yeah, and 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 it's the whole that has meaning. I I, I and, think that's the same yes, philosophy, you can yeah. shift the meaning by changing a word. Yeah, but. Who knows, especially in something like philosophy, whether the philosopher's vocabulary wasn't working to full extent that day. And what well, and he really meant yeah. was the other words. So and I you're taking bit... Sartre's words as translated yeah. by yeah. you know different people each time. And so it becomes a question of sort of the linguistics. Yeah. At its basics, when you're discussing these big Chinese ideas, whispers. I think it is fascinating and important. And I think kids, uh, you know, young kids should be introduced to these ideas and told to think on them. But... Uh, I wouldn't claim that I enjoyed my time at university academically. I enjoyed yeah, all other yeah. aspects of it. Did, did you too find much. natural philosophy at odds with your, with your religiosity, or did you? I'm did not you... personally religious, um, not... though I teach religion. Uh, I'm not strongly religious, nor am I strongly sort of atheist and sort of stringently anti-theist in any sort of way. I would describe myself as agnostic. Right. Uh, I t- I ended up teaching religion to steal a word that uh, a, a writer quite like Steve Earnshaw uses on a whim. Um, I didn't have anything to do at the end of university and uh, someone offered me a teaching sort of said why don't you go and have a go at this and I was like well I need money from somewhere and uh, I taught at a school in Rotherham for a couple of months and was like yep okay I can do it here it was fine I'll get some money and quit but I started working in uh, a school in Shirecliff and fell in love with it uh, with the school uh, more than the act of teaching but teaching was part of it but just 
sort of helping out young people in that way is the bit that I enjoy the most. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely fell in love with teaching uh, completely by accident. I think you either love that sort of school yeah. or you can't teach there. <clears throat> and if the, the kids took to me, I was very lucky and blessed that they did because, you know, this Southern man who they didn't really know with, I've got quite a peculiar vocabulary when I teach, they could have rejected it completely, but they went with me and I found them a very warm and open sort of people for that. And That's I loved it. Advert for Shire Cliff School. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. I, there were some teachers who will give you a very negative advert for that school, <laughs> I'm sure. My time, so, there was nothing but So you left, you left uni and found yourself a job almost straight away? Straight then? away, yeah. I was teaching yeah. straight away. And no no gaps? No, right, no okay. I, yeah, nothing yeah. at all. Now, you, the second piece you're going to read, yeah. whereabouts is that from in the novel? So, um... This is uh, sort of later on, not far later on. Eddie has started working for Stephen, this Nigerian uh, sort of landscaper. who's a very poignant figure in the book, a sort of an alternative father figure. Eddie has lost his mother before the novel starts. And so a lot of it is him reflecting on this lack of parenting. Um, it's sort of part of what I'm trying to write is the importance of this missing mother and the missing sort of femininity in his life. Is that something you can relate to? Not personally, no. Uh, Blessedly, and I'll touch wood and not bang the table, you know, I've I've been very lucky. I don't know quite where it came from, but he, in no draft, was his mother ever in it. And she's never named, very strictly, I was very sure to make sure I never name her. She's always just mom, whereas everyone else is sort of, nearly everyone else is named. I never say the words dead, yeah. at all about her and I never say how she died though I think by this point you're quite aware that it yeah, was sort was, of a long was that, was that a choice or was yeah. it just the way it actually after two chapters I saw it and I looked and I was like I can see what's going on here and I know what I'm going to do and after that there was it was never a time when I was going to I right. never got to a bit and I was like your mum is dead I was like no this never needs to be said it's yeah. so yeah. apparent now I think and so this is, he's gone back home after his first day at work, or his first week at work, and speaking to his dad in this sort of bit. And his dad's sort of, I think the phrase he uses, trying his best, but sort of failing all the time. And that's sort of how their relationship's always sort of been. Yeah, but small elements of style like that can be intriguing when you, as a, you know, for the reader. Yeah, that's sort of, part of it was for the reader. And I, I just, part of it was, once I knew the character, I was like, I don't think he's emotionally dealt with this. And sort of, because it's written in the first person, this is his internal monologue on it, almost. And I don't think he would ever want to have the phrase in his head, my mum is dead, she died from cancer. Hmm. And I think that was important not to ever put into writing about him, which sounds quite pretentious now I've said it, but I think that's why I did it. <laughs> right, OK. Let's see your next piece. Uh, and where, just whereabouts is this from in the novel? Uh, this is, I believe, at the moment, chapter nine. Chapter nine. Of, for, of 30 or something. I think for the moment. For the moment, yes, yeah. until I okay. panic. Right. Ma would be proud, Pop said. I shrugged, scrubbed my hands. Pop had managed to get some lava soap. It was rough, made my hands sore. Mr Snyder helped as well, I said. Pop smiled, slapped the table, stood up, then sat down again. Good, Pop laughed, the damn fool. I thought about telling Pop that Stephen wasn't Stephen, that his name was difficult to say and that he owned A.E. Landscaping because his African name was something with A and E. But Pop had already slumped into a chair to read the mail, with his eyebrows bouncing up and down at each one he opened. Then he sighed and grabbed a cause. A truck was coming down the track. Who in the name of sweet Jesus is this? Pop said. He dropped a letter, final notice from the electric company, stood up. 
looking out the kitchen window across the yard down toward the road. Birds flew over the house. The truck was coming too fast. Stones and dusts flew in the air. A Nissan Tacoma. Same type Angie and Mr Hanratty had. There was no mistaking the blonde hair in the front. Or Mr Hanratty's tattooed arm hanging out the window. We went onto the porch as they pulled up and killed the engine. Pop ahead of me and me just behind. The car settled, engine ticking like a bomb, dust settling. Hanratty opened his door, took his time stepping out, still wearing those black glasses and hair slicked back. He didn't say anything for a while, just looked at Pop, then the house, then at me. He nodded, I nodded back. He took his time to do everything, like he had control over every little flex of muscle in his arm or the grind of his jaw. He spat a thick brown wad onto the lawn. What do you think you're doing? Pop said. Ain't here to speak to you, said Hanratty. Here to speak to your son. Pop gave me a sharp look. I managed to mumble a reply. Pop went to speak but didn't, just raised a finger, then lowered it again. Hanratty crouched and fingered the soil a bit, plucked some blades of grass, dropped them. There wasn't a lick of wind, so they just fell. This sure is beautiful country, Hanratty said. He wasn't looking directly at Pop, more at the house and the sky, like he'd be having this conversation even if we weren't here. Well, it is that, mister, Pop said. We were just settling down for supper, so ask your question and we'll go back to it. Mr Hanratty was still studying everything, just scanning back and forth. He didn't seem in no rush, and didn't seem like he'd heard Pop at all, or if he had, didn't give a damn about what he said. I nodded to Pop but prayed he wouldn't leave me with Hanratty, that he'd not disappear inside, not like after the funeral where he'd disappeared and left me talking to the neighbours and the caterers and the undertaker. Well then, Pop said. He stood next to me, put a hand on my shoulder. I'm here about your friend Oni, Hanratty said. Another brown glob fired out of his mouth, this time landing near Pop's feet. You've seen him since last night. I tried to keep my eyes on those dark glasses, but I couldn't manage it. Flicked my gaze to the sky, the floor, the truck, then back to the glasses. Look a man in the eyes when you're talking to him. Show him you mean what you say. Another of Pop's rules. It didn't count for people in dark glasses. I didn't answer Hanratty, least not straight away. I just shook my head. I ain't seen him, I said. Too quick, like it was all one word. It just jumped out at me. Hanratty moved towards me, pulled off his glasses. Had these little pair of lightning bolts tattooed under each of his pale grey eyes. Knew they were from the Nazis. They were in video games, on the bad guy's uniforms. He curled his lip. His sharp teeth seemed too long. His gums were brown, and the colour had seeped into the gaps between his dead teeth. I couldn't look away now. We just stood there, not much longer than a moment, looking at each other. He never blinked. I did. Well, thanks for that. Dan, uh, this novel is growing on me. I haven't heard of much of it before, uh, as you know. I, I only heard what I heard at the at the novel slam. And as it goes on, I can feel the power growing and the relationship shifting between this lad and his father and yeah. his friend, and the distance he's putting between himself yeah. and his friend. Although he's still protecting him. That's as, that's as very much a friends. theme going through. Yeah, yeah, as old friends do. Yeah, I mean, we I, I know people that I've known all my life, and and whilst I would protect them. 
I don't see myself as being their shadow or, or the, the, kind, no. the same kind of person even as them. And, and I can feel that he's distancing himself. Man, I, I enjoyed that. That's really good. To get back to your to your writing career, shall we say? I think you made a. I think actually you made a really good start. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, and especially with the uh, winning the novel slam, because people don't realise quite how prestigious that is. No, I was, and yeah, it's a damn good I, thing to have on your CV. Yeah, I'm too. over the moon about yeah. it. Yeah, I should I should think so too. And what I want to know is. Looking forward, where do you see yourself progressing from this moment on? Well, my next sort of step that I'm I'm sort of desperate to take is looking to work with a publisher, and you know that's I think that's obvious for any sort of writer, but not necessarily just to see it published or an agent, uh, but to work with an editor, to work with professionals, yeah. to look through it. Because yeah. though I I love it, this what I've done so far. I'm aware that it's not perfect. And even in reading it there, there were little phrases where I was like, oh, I want to change that already. All the word hand coming up in there. And I'm getting to a point with my editing where I worry that I'm just playing with it now. Yes, and you can spoil it by doing exactly. that. Exactly, I you don't, can, yeah. You can actually remove the part that means something. The, the best way to edit by none is actually to stand there and read it yeah. loud. Actually, you get tired of doing after about five minutes. Yeah. But, but do it in short sections and, and just actually read it out loud yourself. Like, as you said, you just found yourself Yeah, it was a little and, sentence I didn't like in yeah, there. And, and I was like, and, oh, and that it's, hit me. it's always the case because when you're reading in your head, you're not taking a breath. No. And the funny thing is that, that when you actually read something, you read it as though you're breathing and pauses mm. and the waiting are all there as a reflection of, of, a, of a physicality that belongs to the reader. Well, and it being the first person, I think there's something yeah. about it being sort of that sort of style of reading. I think that would be. Yeah. I think I need to do more of that. But I mean, Long sentences can be a killer. Cause yeah, they, you know, well, that's not an issue. <laughs> that's not an issue that you've got. No, no, that's no, true. No, I'm, I'm a fan yeah. of the, the, the one-word sentences, my hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the bit where, where that we've, actually just discussed where, where he said that uh, he didn't blink, but I did. Yeah. And I, I think that yeah, sums him up neatly. So, yeah. okay, so you'd like to work with an agent or an editor. What approaches have you made so far? So um, I, I've sent it out to, to agents and I've had very polite rejections. Um, <laughs> and I can... Can't, shall I show you mine? <laughs> yeah, and each one uh, hurts uh, and uh, takes me a bit of time to get over, which it shouldn't, and I keep telling myself that's just part of it, and for some reason my uh, emotions won't listen to my brain in the logic yeah, yeah. centres, and that's, I think, how emotions entirely are, so that's always fun. And then uh, I have days of full self-doubt about it, where I, I decide it's not good enough anymore, and I'm never going to publish it because it's, it's nowhere near ready. And luckily I have my writing group and we meet up again and they look at it and I go, I, I think I'm going to throw this in the bin and they talk me off the ledge every time. Yeah, and who is the writing group? So it's uh, people I met on the Masters. So uh, the sort of main two core is uh, Sarah Perchin, who you've had yeah, I know on here. Yeah. And obviously we write in completely different styles and we're writing completely different genres. And I couldn't be more pleased to hear her feedback on my work because I think it's from this different style and genre. Yeah, yeah. It's so yeah. useful to have her sort of giving this sort of completely opposite view. 
which is so useful. Uh, and David Oakley, who uh, was at the Novel Slam as well and read a piece about a character called Jeremy, who's in Italy. Uh, he was, I believe his final section was them. I think Brian is working with David. I think she has had a, certainly yeah, a meeting yeah, with him. Um, yeah. And David is, once again, completely different. He's like his, he loves a long, florid sentence and he uses vocabulary in a way that I am incredibly jealous of and don't try and copy because it yeah, would be yeah, silly yeah. of me. But his feedback is those two and their support they've given me on my work and I hope I'm repaying it with the support I've given their work has been vital is Ollie in your Ollie Francis in no your, he's no. not we shared some bits and pieces uh, when we first met at the sort of uh, novel slam but mm-hmm. I think he has a separate writing group and I, I've not been able to get down there to that one right, and okay. our one sort of meets at different times I think we might be meeting sort of similar sort of times and so it hasn't really worked as us sharing work but um that sort of collaborative sort of thing. I'm I'm always up for working with people on that. I think it's so important. Yeah, it is. But but I've been a member of one or two writers groups, and um, the difficulty is resisting the temptation to blend your voice into theirs. Yeah, and that's that's the difficulty. I, it's okay to take things on board that have been said, but just because shall we say, several maybe influential people in the writing group don't like your style. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your style. No. It just means it's purely subjective. And I think writers' groups can be a very dangerous place. I, I think I've done... They can be very supportive. Yeah, but I, I think I've been very lucky in the one that we sort of stumbled into in that I think our styles are so different that they're not trying to make my work their work, which I think is nice. But also they... We like each other's work. I really like Sarah's book and I really like David's book. And so when I give them feedback, it's a try and I want it to be great and released. And I hope, and they both tell me they do, I hope they're not lying to me, they like Eddie. So they know him so well. I love it when David calls me out on something that Eddie's doing that is inconsistent. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh yeah, you, you've spotted that. And I'll look at it and ninety, I very rarely does he say something. I do disagree with him on occasions, but very rarely when it's sort of an Eddieism, he's like... Eddie wouldn't be brave enough to go into that room. And I'm like, Eddie wouldn't be brave enough to go into that room. Why have I had him do something that's against his character? They know the character so well that that makes me so happy that I can trust them with it. Yeah, speaking of characterization, I mean, I, I, I understand that before, before you actually sit down and start writing a novel, you, you've got a spark. You've had the spark, but you, then you have much more than the spark. The spark has to light a little flame. Yeah. And the flame is usually inside the heart or the soul of, your main protagonist. Yeah. So how fully fleshed was Eddie when you sort of began to write him? Did did he grow rapidly or are you still expanding him as a character? Eddie grew quite rapidly because Eddie is not a million miles away from me. Well, Especially yeah. 16-year-old me. Hmm. Um, and so I was, once I'd sort of gone, this is the situation that Eddie is in, I found it very easy in some ways to go, this is how Eddie feels about this. Because yeah. looking back at nervous 16-year-old me, I was like, what was what was your what were your fears? So there's quite a lot of him trying to just trying to sort of talk to a girl who he likes. And sort of all those bits I think are quite I'm quite pleased with how I've got little details of it. And people who've sort of given me feedback have said, oh, yeah, you can really see that. It feels real. And I'm like, yeah, well, cause that's a real thing that sort of just happened. That was, uh, I remember being in these sort of conversations. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I got used with Eddie pretty quickly. It was the sort of the side characters who took a lot longer to build. So Eddie, I felt, came was there. 
and then especially Oni's taken a lot, lot longer. In a lot of American writing, the characters tend to come across a little bit exaggerated sometimes. It's almost as though it's for a different audience. Um, I think a lot of British authors are, are more subtle. I find... In fact, I think it's probably one of the reasons I like to read American novelists because they are a little more brash. So and, the, uh, the it's based a lot on Elmore Leonard's writing. Hmm. My sort of the thing that's influencing most is his cowboy novels. Yeah, um, and obviously a cowboy novel, you're going to paint your protagonist with quite a broad brushstroke, and I sort of love that. Have and you read Cormac McCarthy? Yeah, uh, All the Pretty Horses. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, just incredible. Yeah, uh, yeah that uh, Cormac McCarthy, Elmore Leonard and John Steinbeck in terms of stealing vocabulary and stealing the sense of place were the three authors I fell in love with the most for yeah. it. That's southwestern United States. I don't think any of them... I don't think they can be beaten how they describe dry, arid environments, which is where most of this is set. But then Elmore Leonard, in terms of his his character, I love Elmore Leonard's use of dialogue and characters and these very unpretentious, simple books, which is just this man is travelling from one place to another because he has to get home to shoot a man. And that's all you've got. I, I sort of love that sort of very simple, a simple revenge story, a simple protect my family story. I love Elmore Leonard's writing in that yeah. sense. Have you ever tried... Um... Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano haven't takes place in 24 hours. Oh, nice. In Mexico. Oh, I'll definitely give uh, that a go. That so sounds you, exactly my sort of thing. It, I think it's actually not an easy book to read. And oh, I've read, right. read the same book four times. Well, I'm saying read the same book. I've read the book from cover to cover four times <laughs> and I've read four different books. Right. Uh, there is just so much in there out of this 24 hours that the, the detail is incredible so if you like that kind of writing that that yeah that is dense it's, it's really dense um full of uh emotion mm. and uh, in much the same way that that you are you know are describing or ascribing to your characters in there we get a true sense of of change and, yeah and no, I thank you it. so Right, okay, so now you have another piece for us to oh, read, um, do you? While you're sorting out the uh, last piece that you're going to read for us, which I do believe is a, is a shortened end of a chapter, yeah. uh, just tell me something more about your reading history because and, and your influences. You say Elmore James Cormac. Elmore McCall, Leonard. Uh, sorry, Elmore, Elmore James is yes. a blues musician. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, right, okay. I do like the blues. Oh, well, yeah. But, but yeah. Anyway. So, so, so tell me what, what are your other influences? I mean, certainly... Like uh, graphic novels and comic books were a big part of sort of my research. Or oh, what have we got over there? Oh, well, oh Judge Dredd, yes, please. Dan Dare, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, Neil yeah, Gaiman. Uh, well, Neil Gaiman, yeah, the Sandman all, all ones sorts, are incredible. Yeah, yeah I've um, got the Sandman one. Uh, the, the, the Judge Dredd. I've yeah, Dredd's amazing. I, Dredd, I'd say yeah. Judge Dredd, certainly as a character, I think it's very hard to beat with I Can't Lie. There's a Western element to that yes. that I think yeah. is fantastic. Um, but uh, Preacher. Uh, the preacher sort of graphic oh. novels who the name of the writer is escaping me Garth Ennis I think it is um, oh, set in I've, I've read one but yeah uh, I absolutely love they've set in Louisiana and Texas and that sort of style of dialogue I absolutely love sort of iconic lines and then there's uh, a writer called Jason Latour who's written a selection called uh, Southern Bastards uh, about a and the bit that gets me is it's a small town and mine's all about a small town where in this small town, the high school football team is king. And it's just a very simple tale of 
the t- the town's got sort of like a crime problem, a drug problem, all run through this sort of. Uh, the coach of the football team is selling sort of drugs to everyone. He's sort of in charge of town, and sort of an old guy, sort of in his sixties, comes back to town. He never wanted to come back, but he's coming to sell his dad's house, and uh, he ends up being dragged into it all. And I love those sort of simple stories where, yeah. sort of the iconic character, he's got the Sam Neil moustache, and all he's going, he's going to war with just a length of wood, and he's like, right, I've got to clean up this town. I'm not taking a gun. I'm taking this length of wood. And yeah, stuff like that. And I was like, getting some of the language, some of the phrases I used from those, I thought were amazing. Yeah, well, it all helps to create an atmosphere. Yeah, it? exactly. Have you ever come across a guy called Neil Gibson who no. uh, who writes uh, a graphic series called Twisted Dark? Oh no, but I'll have a look. And, I do uh, love graphic. And it's worth looking. Actually, if you if you Google Neil Gibson Twisted Dark, you'll probably find yourself with some free comics. Oh, too, nice. Yeah, and that, that's always good, uh, and and the quality is good there. So you used you've used all sorts of influences. Well, that, I, novels, I just remember this the, the start of that chapter I just read. There's a reference to lava soap, which I got from. I was listening to uh, country musicians from Utah. Yeah. And one of them mentions lava soap. And I was like, that's a specific thing. What's that? So I end up, Go- you know, I live on yeah, Google yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like a traditional old-fashioned soap, like a, sort of a coal tar soap made of lava rock. And so that's lava soap sort of a theme that Eddie keeps getting recommended lava soap and his pop can't find it until this moment. And that was all just yeah. from a little mention of a lyric of a song where I was like, I, I listen to music all the time while I write. And you so, use Google. I, I make a small donation every year to Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I use my it extensively. Lord. Yeah, I can go yeah. down a Wikipedia hole for hours in the yeah. evening. Yeah, I can yeah. I can lose myself there. Okay, so Apparently. let's hear the last piece you're going to read. So this and... is uh, set after Hanratty has sort of left and Pop sort of sits down with Eddie to talk about who that man was and the nature of sort of these tattoos that have been seen on sort of Hanratty's face. And they sort of have a conversation about sort of pop sort of history and stuff like that so it's sort of them having won their first sort of you say heart to hearts in the novel at any point okay fire away pop shook his head started fiddling with the mail a man gets a tattoo like that special on his face he ain't taking part no more he's decided he's done with work and living normal a lot of folk round here got similar tattoos but they got them hidden away up on their arm or their back pop said as he ripped an envelope open, not looking at me. I just sat quiet. Hell, half the town got something like that tattooed somewhere. But they got the good sense to keep it covered up all day, because that kind of thing makes choices for you. Say if you want a good job, or a wife, maybe kids one day. I know Oni got some tattoos, and that's between him and his Grammy. But I don't want you getting that done. Not like them ones anyway. I nodded. I always wanted a tattoo, like a band's name, or a star, or tribal patterns, but I didn't want ones like Hanratty. They looked rough, like the person that done them was drinking. A squirrel shouted in the yard, something creaked in the house. Pop smiled. You ever think about getting a tattoo? I said. I thought I knew the answer. Pop laughed, rolled up his sleeve, pointed to a bunch of moles covered in wiry hair. That there is as close as I got, Pop said. Wanted to get your mum's name. When we first met, I wanted to make a, you know, a gesture, I said. Yeah. Only got so far as that line there. Between the moles was a small black mark. I studied the line. It looked like nothing till you looked real close. Maybe quarter of an inch. Pop must have caught the look on my face. It ain't never got finished. Hurt so damn much I bucked from the table 
damn near went wild. Your Uncle Jerry tried to calm me, ended up knocking him on his behind and stormed back to your mum. I laughed, thinking about him knocking Jerry on his behind. Thought Pop was exaggerating. Jerry was at least two inches taller and 20 pounds heavier. But more the thought of him showing Mum a tattoo of her name. You are the greatest fool that the good Lord ever created, Clifford Nielsen. I should have traded you in years ago. She'd have scolded him like that each time he did something she thought was plain stupid. But always laughing at the end. And Pop would throw his arms around her and kiss her all on the head, making noises like he was brain dead. I was going to take her everywhere but here, Pop said, looking at the bill in his hand. I could see the bold red lettering. She always wanted to go. We saved. One for you for college, one for an RV. Your mum wanted to see the Pacific and the Atlantic. I said wait till we got married, then wait till you was born, then wait till you was grown, then wait till she was better. Uh, that that That's quite impactful at, at, at the end. I mean, this is the sort of thing that we all do, yeah. isn't it? We all prevaricate. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> I was saying procrastinate now. You may never get another chance. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate no that. Worries. And thank you for coming up. I, I mean, the, your writing, your style is, is lovely and smooth oh, and cheers. easy to listen to. I, I really enjoyed that. So thank you very much. Oh, and it's nice to actually learn more about you because last <laughs> yeah. time I saw you, it was very brief. And yeah. You were sort of in and out of the novel slam. And yeah, just me being panicked been. on stage. And yeah, you, you've just been actually very brave up there on stage. <laughs> thank you very I, much. I know exactly what that's like. So, uh, right. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for the invite. You're welcome. You're more than welcome. And uh, we'll see you again, no doubt. Hopefully, okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Right. And best of luck with your novel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed your free podcast from Urban Tiger Radio. And if you've hit that subscribe button, you'll be hearing from us again in a week's time. So it's a goodbye from me and a... From Nelly. Goodbye. <coughs>